Hello and welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us here at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Leo Fondriest and I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan. Uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce our very first panel of the day today. Uh, this is the Bet On It, a conversation in innovation in the sports betting industry panel. And our panelists today are Jonathan Kraft, president of the Kraft Group, Amy Howe, CEO of FanDuel, Tom Rieg, CEO of Caesars. Our panel will be moderated by Contessa Brewer of CNBC. The panel will run for about 45 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. Please submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag bettinginnovation. We will send the questions to Contessa. She will select from the questions submitted. Uh, and with that, I will hand it over to Contessa. So you have to make them really attention-getting so that you could, I get picked. Uh, it's great to be here today. So great to have an illustrious panel with me. It really struck me that in the years that this conference has been going on, this year, that there are a lot of representatives from the gambling industry in a sports analytics conference. It's indicative of a new era that we're in where sports and and sports betting are becoming intertwined. Massachusetts is getting ready to launch mobile betting uh, it, next week, it looks like. So Jonathan, I'd like to start with you about how teams think about legalization, how you encourage sports betting in your state. How do you take advantage of the new normal? Well, I. It's a lot, there's a lot to unpack in that question, but what I would say is it, when we first got into the sports business in the 90s, you know, gambling was completely taboo. And even Contessa, when you and I talked for a few minutes yesterday, you know, you asked about the transition over. And some people like to call it hypocrisy now that the leagues are embracing sports betting. I think that for teams, historically, you knew sports betting existed, but it was illegal. You know, when things are illegal, especially if you're an established, you know, you can't embrace something. We, we, at least at the craft sports group, always believed that when an activity was so widespread and illegal, it would be much smarter to have it become legalized, become regulated, and and be responsibly put into the delivery of our product in whatever way, shape, or form that took. And that's why in the early part of the last decade, when daily fantasy started to become a business, we sort of embraced it because we saw it as the beginning of what would hopefully lead to the um, challenge of passports overturning in sports betting. And all it does for us, it, it, we, we love it because now something that wasn't legal is legal, but it drives engagement in our business. And from a data standpoint, if used properly, I think there's a lot of really great information there that allows us to enhance our product. And so March, uh, next week, March 10th, can't come fast enough from our perspective. And the only thing that bothers me as a citizen of the state is that it took our legislature way too long to uh, legalize it. Tackle it. Well, like legislators. Better late than never. Better late than never, but it, you know, they don't understand that there's a revenue source sitting there and it might be good instead of letting people who are doing it illicitly get that revenue to 
have the people benefit. You know, I covered the openings of the two casinos in Massachusetts when they launched the Encore Boston Harbor and MGM Springfield. And it, it has taken, there's been quite a lag time um, between the bricks and mortar and sports betting. And the two of you weren't really a part of that, but now you get to come in and participate. Tom, I know for bricks and mortar for you and mobile, right, and Amy. So what does it mean when a state comes online? And talk to me a little bit about what you get out of the relationships with Jonathan, with the Patriots, with, with the Celtics, with other teams when you're launching sports betting. Amy? Well, it's funny, Jonathan, just listening to you, the the when the NFL embraced sports betting, I think it was a real tipping point and an inflection point for the industry, right? Um, we we have an opportunity to to partner up with the NFL and then we have relationships with many of the teams. And um, you know, listen, the when you open up a new state and you have those partnerships, right, whether it's, and Massachusetts is a great example, you have four of the biggest professional sports teams here. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's what drives your business. One of the things that has been a hallmark of our success is making sure we're in market day one. And this will be our 19th state that we're going to be online. And so to come into a, a, a market like Massachusetts, it's the, you know, 15th largest state in terms of the population that's over the age of 21, but to be able to do that, we now have a playbook that we know works, and then to have the assets and the integration with sports teams um, and to be able to access, for, unfortunately it wasn't open in time for Super Bowl, that would have been nice, but. <laughs> Politicians. But, uh, um, but, but to be able to take the playbook that we know has worked so successfully in other states, you know, we just launched Ohio in the beginning of the year, and within two months, 7% seven, of that adult penetration has been reached. So, it's, it's a, a huge privilege to be able to partner with the, the leagues and the teams. Yeah, and for, for us, you know, we're looking at a similar opportunity in terms of size of the state. We also have, obviously, a physical network of 50-plus properties and a foothold in destination markets where we have customers coming from each state. And you want to go, you want to, provide what your customers are looking for. You know, to Jonathan's point, it wasn't a secret that, that fans wanted to bet on sports, but it wasn't legal, so there wasn't a, you, you couldn't move there. That's changed. You know, for us, we have, we've had customers that come from Massachusetts, but we really only touch them when they come and visit us in Vegas or Atlantic City or one of our destination markets. Now we get to bring that that relationship local and really get build a stickier relationship with our customers. When you are looking at the importance of that reward system that players in Caesar's ecosystem have an opportunity to build points and use those points in Las Vegas or Atlantic City or, or wherever, how much does that give you um, a competitive advantage, do you think, Tom? against the online only or, or majority online competitors? Well, not enough to keep up with Amy ah. so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, obviously, that's what we tap into. We've got 65 million people in our database. This is something that we acquired when we bought Caesars, and we've got two decades worth of data in terms of how they behave in our properties in physical casinos. 
And in terms of acquisition cost, that's going to be our cheapest channel to acquire customers. And we've got to give the customer a reason to stick with us. And you know, what's nice is uh, what we can see is as we provide the experience, you know, Illinois being an example where we were on a legacy technology that was awful and we didn't advertise, we rolled out our Liberty platform, which is our competitive platform, and you can see us start to move up without any real advertising spend behind us. So it indicates that you know, people are inclined to do business with us based on the relationships we've built in the brick and mortar business. It's our job to keep them in the fold in digital. If it makes you feel any better, one of the biggest questions I get from investors is, are you going to go out and acquire casinos? <laughs> you have a structural disadvantage. You don't have the database. Are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to ever own casinos. That's not the business we're in. <laughs> Good to know. I'm going to keep, can you just save that way? <laughs> when you're looking at who to partner with for the Patriots, uh, I know that fan engagement is important to you. Does it matter? how successful the, the partner is? You, I, well, anybody we partner with in any business, <clears throat> excuse me, if we're putting them out to our fan base and the people who uh, are our most important um, customers, it's important that they have a quality product. I mean, so if they, we're not, if someone came to us with a product and a lot of money, but the product isn't any good, we wouldn't do it. DraftKings started here, I apologize, Amy, and, and uh, DraftKings was a local Boston company, and so from early on there was a tight partnership, but I think in the early days of DraftKings, because the company was so young, 30-some-odd employees, they were in the daily fantasy business, we would talk to them a lot, and we would talk to them and give them feedback on the interface, on the product, because for us, if we weren't with somebody that had a great product, we probably would rather go with one of the other competitors. And I think if you flash forward, you know, the nine years that it's been, the reason FanDuel and DraftKings are the leaders in market share is because they understood the mobile online sports player. It started in fantasy, now it's moved to sports betting but they know how to develop the interface. They know what people are looking for. They, it's, it's the way I don't think Amy or Jason Robbins could design a brick and mortar casino the way Tom could have one. It's just two completely separate products. So for us, that was a natural um, decision. When sports betting came to the market, when, when the NFL was allowed to start doing sponsorships with casinos, we then, we have relationships with MGM and Wynn, like we, we have those, but our sports betting partnership is with DraftKings. Uh, so you were an early investor in DraftKings, but Amy's boss just told me on CNBC yesterday, they've now grown their market share in the U.S. to 50%. We're going to dig it out of here. <laughs> did you back the wrong horse? No, I think I, it's a good question. <laughs> Keep going, Contessa. I think we had the right horse. <laughs> FanDuel was teetering, and Flutter, they weren't going to exist. I think the people, and Amy was not running it then, so I should say that. Uh, but FanDuel was teetering, and it looked, was it four or five, four years ago now? 
five years ago. Yeah. It looked like DraftKings was going to really become the dominant player, but a British sports betting company, somebody with a great tech stack knowledge and data on how people like to bet, uh, realized that America was a fertile market and now was the time to strike, and they bought a great asset. And Michael Rubin, who is in the front here, who's been for years, he's like, those guys just made the best, smartest investment. I mean, I remember him calling me, telling me that, and, and he predicted what had happened. And actually, if you were to ask me today, I think for mobile, it's a three-horse race in the U.S. It's, it's FanDuel, it's DraftKings. And I really believe because Fanatics is a digital mobile-first company with a huge database and knowledge of sports fans and what they want, they started taking their first bets yesterday in Tennessee. If we were to wake up three, four years from now, I believe those are the three people who dominate the mobile, mobile space in our country. And people like Tom and some of his competitors will dominate the brick and mortar space and it'll really be a bifurcated market. That would be my prediction. And you said that like the, the mobile operators don't build casinos. <clears throat> Has it been harder than you anticipated to get into a mobile business? Uh, no, I mean, it, we, we bought William Hill last April uh, and we couldn't close, it was a UK based acquisition. So basically, you start from a standing start the day you close. So we didn't close that acquisition until April. We were launching our business August the 4th. So we've kind of been running to catch up and build what FanDuel and what DraftKings have built over a longer period of time. But this is a giant opportunity uh, in terms of what's available in sports betting and ultimately in iGaming, um, you know, and we're looking at it from a, how much of a return on investment can I get? Um, and we're going to keep building the business. We certainly believe that we're gonna be among the players that matter at the end of the day. Um, but it's been, it's not without its starts and stops and uh, twists along the way, but we're pleased with the way it's developed today. Also, I should mention, Amy, Tom, you both have reported fourth quarter near profitability. Amy, for you, only accepting the launches in new states, and Tom, with the well-known mattress Mac uh, bets. <laughs> <laughs> Who sat out of the Super Bowl, by the way. <laughs> yeah. so, so how does the technology factor into making this a profitable business and investors who want to see increasing margins, you know, return to shareholders some capital. I mean, for us, uh, I mean, listen, Jonathan's right. When, when Flutter acquired FanDuel, the reason they did it is, I mean, they had some of the biggest gl global gaming brands in the world, but they, <clears throat> they also knew that those brands weren't going to resonate here, right? Patty Power, Betfair, they're primarily UK brands. But when when they invested in us, we were able to, the, the technology has been a huge driver of our path to profitability for two reasons. One is we have scalable tech that's reliable, right? On Super Bowl, when you're taking 50,000 bets per minute, you need to make sure that platform works, right? Um, and we've been on the Flutter platform now for, you know, for quite some time. So, so that's been a huge driver um, of, you know, of the success, but also, it's partly technology, it's also partly the risk and trading capability. All that's done in-house, and so that has given us a, 
a pricing and a structural margin advantage, which has also helped our margins quite In well. fact, that seems to be the trajectory for the biggest players to bring all of the technology in-house. You probably have people in the audience who have ideas or have businesses and they'd like to do business with you. Is there still room, Tom, for startups to come and get a, an opportunity to sell you their services or is it all going to be in-house from here on out? No, there's no question you're always looking to enhance your tech and you know in our organization we're parsing through these two the two decades of data we have and building um, you know, building relationships both on the digital and brick and mortar side but we're constantly looking to advance the app in play is it, it continues to be a bigger piece of the business as it's been in mature markets and if you can if you've got something that can improve our experience there improve improve our ability to you know avoid the the circle of death while you're trying to get a a lineup for in play <laughs> that's of interest to us. And if you can help us improve that, improve latency, all of that makes the, the customer experience better. And you're trying to move to in-play to parlays. You know, one of the big uh, things that FanDuel has done a fantastic job of is their hold percentage is well in, ahead of the rest of the space. And that's design a product that's where um, that's percentage of parlay, that's percentage of in-play, and we're all working toward the same thing. So while we want it to be in-house, if you come with your idea, we're probably going to tell you we want to buy that and incorporate into our technology rather than have a third-party provider. We're certainly interested in advancing the quality of our tech as we move forward. But I think there's plenty of room for, yeah, I mean, we, we work with tons of third parties, right? They're, they just are, they're non-core, right? I'm never going to go build a payments platform or, you know, geolocation services or fraud tools. I mean, there's best-in-class tools. I think the, the trick is we've got this very complicated patchwork of now, you know, 18 going on 19 states, and the regulatory framework looks different. So you have to build something that is disruptive and additive, but also plug-and-play, right, so that I can integrate that quickly into a platform and be able to you know, to do something at scale. But I think there's plenty of room for innovation. I, I just want to explain, in, ca in case there are people in the audience who don't know all of the gaming terms, when we talk about latency, it's this lag time between the live action that's happening on the field or on the court and what you're seeing on television and what gets displayed. And, and for in-game betting, you were explaining to me, Amy, that basketball is such a fast-paced game that you really have to have systems that move quickly. Am I getting this right? Yes, and, and like a good example for NBA, one of the you know, very popular player props would be you know, next player to score. If, you're, if you have too much latency, somebody's already scored, scored before you've actually placed the bet. Right? So Jonathan, I was surprised yesterday when we were talking about this that that is a huge well, hurdle, you think, for, for how we move forward. Yeah, I think if you're going to evolve the product to be fully what it can be, and from a, from a team perspective, from a league perspective, sports betting is an engagement tool more than anything else. We, we, putting aside any revenue, direct revenue, we might get from Caesars or FanDuel, the real byproduct that's a positive for us is the engagement. The engagement 
before the game, people doing their homework, thinking about it, looking at it, and then in-game being even more engaged rather than passively watching, actively watching. And I, I personally believe that the real future of sports betting and the, the majority of the revenue will come from in-game live betting or in-game proposition betting. In order to do it right, you need to be able to collect data on the field in real time, in complete real time, have algorithms process it, and then spit out proposition bets, which in football, you've got, you know, call it 20, at least 25 seconds between plays. So you've got to, A, collect the data, be 100% sure it's accurate, have algorithms that both process new proposition bets and feed them out to the people who are interested in doing it. At the same time, use the data from the prior play to settle up any other wagers that were made on that play and that hit, and, and do it all in a seamless, 100% perfect fashion. And, and, and I think we're years away from really solving it, but when we do, there's gonna be real benefit both to the sports betting companies, the leagues, the fans, because the data that gets collected when you're doing that for every little thing going on on the field, you're gonna be able to improve things like player safety with that information. You're gonna also be able to understand the types, by looking at the types of bets that intrigue people, proposition bets, you're gonna understand the things that are most entertaining about the game, help the leagues tweak the games, tweak the rules, and then by driving more engagement and, and, and making it more fun, it, 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 you're gonna drive more revenue and that's gonna benefit the people to my left. And so if you think about it and you imagine the way you have a crawl at the bottom of the, the, the screen on ESPN today with scores or CNN with headlines, when you turn on an NFL game, an MLS match, an NBA game, et cetera, you might choose to opt into the betting stream and the league will have somebody that owns that right on the screen who we've licensed it to. And if you can feed them that data without delay or with infinitesimal delay, you're gonna be able to have your TV almost working or have whatever device you watch on working like a slot machine where you deposit money at the start and you're making wagers throughout the game and it's just tabulating back and forth. And to me, that's why the latency issue is so critical. But the data that you collect that underlies it is gonna benefit us in a gazillion other ways. And then the opportunity further from an operator standpoint in InPlay is our trading teams are then making a mark, they're, they're setting odds on whether it's the next play, the next player to score. You know, th that's a kind of a mismatch of manual and automated now. And the more you can get that to automated, the quicker your lines are going to go up. But that's where you're, if you're on Twitter and you see a screenshot of, you know, I wanted to bet this in-play bet and somebody would let me bet 34 cents. That's hmm. an automated program telling you they don't have much confidence in the line that they set, so they limit the bet. So the better that we can get at that, the more business is going to happen in play. And that's going to be a mix of how much you could, because the human, you know, I'm going to set a human line here. That's where you get the, the circle where you can't make a bet. So you're kind of in between the customer frustrated. They can't make the bet that they want or they can't bet enough because you can't get the line set in a way that you're confident. That's a big piece of what tech is going to help us with 
in terms of advancing the product as an industry. We launched a product this year for, for the NFL season. It's a live same game parlay product and 50% of our NFL actives are using that product in, in the first season alone. So the, when you put the innovation out there, Jonathan's right, there's a lot, as you describe it, trying to actually get a seamless process like that um, with the latency, the settlement, all that is, is challenging. <laughs> the, the, when, when you have great innovations, consumers are, are engaging them. We see is when we launch new, new states, the uptake on player props and parlays and same game parlays, it's significantly higher in new states than you would have seen years ago in New Jersey just because they're now becoming such an important part of the actual live sport, uh, sport experience. Are you all right? <laughs> I just you have recall up here. <laughs> That's why I have it. A little frog. <clears throat> I want to ask you about the, not only the importance of those proposition bets, but I also think it's really interesting that the, the industry has been slow to be able to technologically innovate <coughs> how you make marketing promotions particular to the players. You've got a name for it. What's the what's the segmentation, customer yeah. segmentation. <coughs> how are we how are we doing in terms of those technological advances that say Contessa Brewer is not a big sports better. So we're not we're not gonna offer her a thousand dollars risk free bet because she's not a good value to us. She's not gonna pay back into the system. But you know So I can talk about our experience there. Last year, as we were launching, and as I said, we started from a standing start, and we're launching in all these states, and all these new customers are coming in through uh, the, the new customer promo offers. We didn't have the ability to, to discern that Amy's worth $1,000 and Contessa's worth $10. And so what happens is you're giving them the same promotion. So I'm under-investing in Amy. I'm over-investing in Contessa. That's in this football season that was different for us. And that's how uh, you know, we were able to pull back on promotional spend without any degradation of share because now I can identify my best customers. And that's very similar to what we've done on the brick and mortar side as we've built the business is you find out who your best customers are and you invest in them appropriately and you don't spend money on the customers that won't spend money with you. And so we have that ability and we've implemented that in digital, but in terms of where we are in that, it's early days compared to where we've been in brick and mortar. In our industry, it's, um, I mean, listen, it's such a, a critical capability, especially you mentioned earlier, the focus on path to profitability. If When you're spending, you know, a billion dollars in, promotional dollars, you can't afford to waste it, right? And so to Tom's point, if, you know, to, A, the, the ability to, to identify who that person is and understand their value, um, but also there's tremendous volatility, right, from week to week, right? There's, a, I think, a misconception in sports betting that the house always wins. That's not true, right? So based on how the, the you know, if you have a great NFL weekend or a bad NFL weekend, you, you want to be able to... The Super Bowl being a good example. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so it's not just about identifying who that customer is and, and deploying at a very granular level, but it's also being able to respond quickly to the vol inherent volatility that actually takes place from week to week in the industry. Do you see how that could come into play for you with fans too? Like once that level of 
data is available from your gate. Your, I didn't know it was possible for New England fans to become more engaged because, I, listen, I lived in Maine. I was, a, it, I was in a Red Sox country. We're, we were all a bunch of kooks. <laughs> I, I don't think you, you know, if you feel like people are at their full level of engagement, then you might as well go home, right? So from our perspective, anything that we can do, like when we first got into the football business, you'd watch the game for three hours on Sunday and there'd be a couple minutes on the nightly newscast and you'd read the sports page the next day. And the internet age was just starting to dawn and we figured out quickly that if we internally started to generate articles and content, and I'm going back to the mid 90s now, 94, 95, 96, you could start to drive more time and more engagement with your fans. And the more you drive time and engagement with them, the better the connection's gonna be. In good or bad times, they, people care more. So we, we started that then, and I won't walk you through the whole evolution, but I'll just say this, that in the month of January, the NFL is now doing a, a, a really detailed data, data collection effort around all NFL fans from the most passive to the most passionate. And it involves a whole host of uh, methodologies to get the data in. But one of them evolved, is, is involved around sports betting and we hire third parties to help us collect data and do surveys from around the country. In the month of January, there was almost 100 million hours spent by Americans. So if you think that the adult population is about 250 million, 225, 250, and then you realize that sports betting is only legal in two-thirds of the states and mobiles in half the states, we had almost 100 million hours in the month of January when we're not even running a full slate of games. And so... Five years ago, that 100 million was probably 10 million, 15 million. And, and 25, 30 years ago, it was probably much less than that. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I don't think we're anywhere near the top. And the way Amy said and Tom referred to, if you keep innovating and finding more ways through the data to attract and engage people, it's just going to continue to drive up the the connection to our product, and that's a good thing. And the day we feel like we're at the top of that is the day you should probably sell. So I, 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 think, I think there's, I agree, completely agree with Jonathan. I think there's a huge opportunity to, we're barely scratching the surface, I believe, on engagement. And you think about, we talk about de-anonymizing customers. Like these are my, my two worlds colliding between ticketing and now sports betting. But what percentage of your customers uh, at Gillette Stadium can you identify now through digital ticketing? Uh, today, virtually 100%. Right. So if you have an integration through APIs and, you know, as people are coming into the stadium, I know it's a new fem a, a woman who's never bet before, but she's an avid NFL fan. How do I personalize that experience versus somebody who, you know, is a high-value customer? They've been betting for a long time and they're much more experienced. I might want to provide a very different experience. So, Aren't you doing that in bricks and mortar too with all of the... Yeah, I mean, that's the bit, the, what you're trying to do in a stadium, in a digital arena where you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of customers, or in a giant casino that's full of people, is give your customer the experience of they're noticing me, 
that I'm important to them. And so you're going to do that, you want to do that by touching them in ways that are relevant to them, not, you know, I randomly get, you know, an email that has nothing to do with me. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the, the name is, it's not dear Tom, it's dear somebody else. Uh, you want the, I'm having experience curated for me. And the more that you can do that with particularly your highest value people, but as many people as you can, the more engagement you're going to get. And as an NFL fan, as just someone who grew up watching the sport, you know, 18-year-old me, 21-year-old me couldn't imagine that there would be wall-to-wall coverage of the combine this week in, in the sports world. And you've seen the NFL in particular continue to expand. You're not just paying attention to it from September to February now. You're paying attention to it year-round. And it's all those engagement pieces that continue to add up, and this is going to be a further opportunity to increase that. So I'd like to put on hats of futurists and talk a little bit about big tech. Uh, First, the metaverse and AR and VR and how that potentially changes or makes sports betting and sports viewing and the marriage between the two look different. Jonathan? You're going to the least capable person. <laughs> I, I was glad three, about but that. I would, I it's would, only because ask his son that I, question. I would, no, no, no. I, 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 to me, I'm a much bigger believer in AR than VR. And that data collection from the field that we talked about obviously would, would, would put chips all over the field and continuing, continuously collecting data. In my mind, where it goes from an AR perspective is if you're in the building and you, know, you take your phone and you hold it up to the field and you're in, you're in the right app, you could see bubbles over every player's head so you know what skilled players are on the field. The proposition bets could be there, and you could create a different experience through AR for people that wanted to engage in the building. Uh, to me, that's where I really see it going. I know there's a lot of talk around the VR side of it and watching the game in a unique position from at home. I'm just not a believer in it, but I might be too old. So, But I think AR is really where the future is for increased engagement and also in the in-venue opportunity of combining sports betting with being a spectator in a building. However, one of the interesting phenomena that's happening is that, and, and you brought this up to me yesterday, right now, mostly you're betting against the house, like FanDuel's taking your bet. But you know how we bet before it became legal was that we would go to the office, you'd bet with friends, you'd be in an office pool. And that kind of social betting, there's a business opportunity there. I mean, can you see one, is, is that something you're focused on, Amy? Creating a place, a space for people to bet against each other and then, the, and then you're taking a fee from it or something like that? Well, social betting already is huge, right? I mean, there's a, there's a huge community aspect of how betting works to begin with, right? I mean, in, in some of these you see on our, we have integrations with, Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith on TNT, and when they back a same-game parlay, there's there's a community aspect of that, right? Almost a um, a social crowding aspect. 
Um, so I do think, yeah, listen, I think there, there's an opportunity. We, we have a product actually in one of our international divisions. It's an exchange. Um, we have not chosen to bring that to the States, but it's, it's a product that actually works very well over in the UK. Um, right now, we're, you know, we're, we're less focused on bringing those types of products and more focused on the innovation that we know works in, in the States. What, one comment I would say on the, on the metaverse, I think, listen, I think it remains to be seen how that's actually going to impact the, the, the sports betting experience. One thing you have to be a little careful of is in the metaphors, you actually can't verify your customers, right? So in, in a world where we're a regulated platform, you know, when you're talking about real money wagering, you have to be 21 or older. You, you, just, you have to be a little bit careful around you know, how you think about the role that the metaverse ultimately plays um, when you're a regulated platform. And that's a key point on the social as yeah. well. The, the regulatory aspect here, you know, Amy and I spend a lot of time getting states comfortable with the, the basics. More than we would like. <laughs> Just your, 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 your citizens want sports betting. Here's the way to do it responsibly. And obviously we're gaining a lot of traction there among, you know, many, many states. But to move beyond that um, is, seems aggressive at this point from yeah. a regulatory perspective. I, I might, can I just say yeah. one thing though? As, as a person that's not in the business, I do think peer-to-peer -peer betting is gonna be important for people long-term and they're gonna demand it from the social part that Amy described because if you have a group of friends from college and some of you were Bears fans, some of you were Packers fans, whatever, the ability to be online during a game and having a pool of wages that's monitored by a third party that's collecting a fee, but going back and forth with each other and betting. I do think that peer-to-peer -peer social sports betting will become a part of the overall marketplace. And I think it's in the, the, the league's best interests to in, encourage that also, assuming people are of the right age and, and assuming it's, it's, it's all properly managed. And I think you'll attract some people to that who would never bet with a Caesars, with a FanDuel, with a Fanatics, with a DraftKings. Also, it's I, a I lot really easier to smack that. talk. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the social element of it <laughs> yeah, when you're right. watching. And I, I really, I do believe that that'll be there. The, it won't, it, the odds won't be as professionally set, obviously, and it won't be, it, the, the the pie won't be anywhere near as large, but I do think it's going to be an important part and of it. You, you see that in the physical casino business, every football Saturday or Sunday, you see it with March Madness. You see groups of people come out together, sit in a book all day, and you know cheer with their friends. And a lot of time they're on the off, opposite sides of the bets. And a lot of times it'll be people that wouldn't be gambling at home on their app. It's that social aspect. That's, that draws them in. It's just betting directly with each other from a regulatory perspective is further out. You'll figure it out. I think Tennessee has that wager and there's a couple, there's a couple of other businesses. I mean, I pay a little bit of attention to it. You guys know it better. But ultimately, I would think each of you would be in the business of offering a product like that and, mm -hmm. and managing it and taking a fee. But I don't, I'm not just sure. I'm, like, but thank you for managing our business. We, <laughs> we like that. I'm going to take Twitter questions in five minutes. So if you have them, post them up on, on Twitter now. The last question I want to ask is about the integrity of 
the industry and the integrity of the game. And Jonathan, because mobile is launching here, I want to ask you, what tools are you using to ensure that your players and, and the staff are keeping the integrity of the game intact? Well, any employee of the NFL has to read a very long treatise on how they are to go nowhere near this and then sign it. Um, so for us, it's just very black and white. And then the NFL um, at the centralized level has a very detailed monitoring policy. You saw, you've seen a couple of our players in the last year uh, get suspended. There haven't been any staff suspended yet, but I think, I think it's pretty well known and understood at, in, in the league staff, uh, among the, le the teams and the league office that if you wager, you're going to be out of your job. And, and you, you, you not only, just to, even if you just wager, let alone perform any monkey business, if you do that, you're, you, you have a real chance of going to jail. I think the big leagues have done a very good job. I mean, it's really a zero tolerance policy around this. And, you know, we, this is one of those areas where, you know, obviously we compete, but to the extent that there are any issues, any integrity issues, we'll share those with with competitors as well. Yeah, that's not good for any of yeah. us. And I can say when I sit down with Commissioner Goodell, always a question from him is, where are we vulnerable? Where, what are we not seeing in terms of where we could have a risk? And you know, we're heavily, heavily regulated. And, and um, you know, obviously, we're, we're looking for this to be an activity that's fun for our customers. And so, We've got all kinds of programs around responsible gaming where you know, we're trying to do this in the right way so that you don't stub your toe. And all of us are trying to do the same thing. It's not good if we stub our toe, it's not good for us if Amy stubs her toe. So we're all working toward how do we keep this above board and there's no but, question. But in the same way that you can't really know your customer on the metaverse, we are, I know that teenagers are getting into their parents' accounts or taking their parents' information and launching accounts that underage gambling and problem gambling, people who are addicted to gambling um, are there, they exist. Is there technological innovations that can help disrupt that? Yeah, well, first of all, that's called proxy betting. And if we identify it, we'll shut the account off immediately. Like in similar vein to what Jonathan is describing, we have a zero tolerance policy on that. The, since we're at an analytics conference right now, I think you know, there's a huge role that data analytics and AI can play in spotting risky, risky behavior. So actually, we're, we're piloting a lot of this technology, and we have the benefit of doing some of this globally. But we can, now the models are very sophisticated, so you can look at betting behavior and you can identify it pretty quickly. And then when you layer on top of that real-time intervention tools, we're, we're using a third, to your question about you know, technology partners, there's a third party that we're working with right now, that once you identify that behavior, we can literally in, in real-time intervene and shut an account off. So um, I think there's a, a tremendous obligation and responsibility and lots of great minds in this room who could probably 
um, help think about how to use those tools more. And, and I think having people like Amy and Tom and their competitors doing that with the leagues now investing millions of dollars in it too is, is really powerful. When I was in college, I had two friends, you know, in today's day and age, they can have real insight into this. I had two friends who got into problems with bookies. And that's, that's the, I, the legalization of sports betting, I think, actually helps on this front <laughs> because when you get into trouble with bookies and you're begging your friends for money to pay them off, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, getting your hands spanked by the authorities or maybe getting a fine. It's, it's really a matter of physical harm or not, or it was in those days. But I think I think Wait, you're not kneecapping <laughs> your <laughs> we closed that division but to Jonathan. Listen, the NFL no, and the I... NBA have done a, a great job. I mean, we spend as much time talking to Roger and Rini about how we create a code of conduct. Right. To, to Tom's point, if, if we can build this the right way and establish a code of conduct that we all adhere to, that isn't what regulated regulators will tell you the bare minimum you have to do. But there's there are things that we ought to be doing as an industry above and beyond that, some which we're already doing. And so if we can work through the leagues, the NFL, the NBA, to establish that, I, I think we're, we won't have some of the same unintended consequences. Yeah, and it, as Jonathan said, that, that with all of that, there was a high-profile suspension. So you're not going to design a foolproof system for all of the transactions that, we ha that, that go through our networks. But we are going to make certain that it is as few as it can possibly be. Yeah. I, I should point out, too, that I'm on the NFL Sports Betting Committee, and I can tell you every meeting starts with not a top line of the revenues and our cut or anything like that. Every meeting starts with a discussion about what's going on on the, the compliance front and the security front. And, and that's literally how every meeting starts. Because it is a, a real risk to the bottom line, and we heard that from Peter Jackson, the CEO of Flutter yesterday, that you know, what has happened in Europe is a regulatory backlash that affects how much money gets made. I want to move to the Twitter questions now. Um, what data do you wish you had, Amy, but you don't? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I think the... Listen, there's certain the, the data we have for the big categories, right? The the NFL, the NBA, I think is is very robust. When you start to get into some of the longer tail sports, the, the data tends not to be quite as robust. Um, so I think it may be more from a, a category perspective as opposed to we there's a lot of data signals that we already have, and um, you know some of them we we ha we take over from you know from our global colleagues as well. But I th I, for me, it's it's more at the category level as opposed to we're not getting data that we need to set the odds the right way. Yeah, it's not necessarily a lack of data anywhere. It's are you seeing what everything that the data is telling you? That's really the um, the biggest challenge for us. We get plenty of data. Oh. Um, on our customers. Do you have data that you want, other than how to keep players safer and all those things? Well, no, I mean, if the, we, we, we only, we really don't get a lot of their data. We don't get any of their data. So if Tom and Amy and Jason and Michael and others wanted to share it with us, we would love it. So the data we have to get is through, uh, related to this, is through our own means of talking to, to 
to our fans and, and our customers. Tom, I mentioned the impact of Mattress Mac on your bottom line when he's lucky. But what's the impact that he has on the industry as a whole? He is a fantastic marketer. Mm -hmm. So whether he wins or loses a bet, the entire world is aware of the bet, which obviously didn't work so well for us with the World Series. <laughs> um, but you want that you want that kind of organic coverage to develop. That's not me pushing Caesars out to the world. That's someone who's a customer saying, you know, Caesars is great, they'll take these big bets, go to Caesars. And he's now identified, a, he's got to be the most famous sports better yeah. around. So, I mean. Larger than life personality. <laughs> yeah, so you're really, with him looking at how much are you willing to take of his action, but I think we're all happy to have him as a, as a with his megaphone talking about our brand. He even talks about responsible gambling in an organic way where he's like, but I can afford to lose it. You know, you, you should only be gambling what you can afford to lose. And so his way of talking about it is not because of regulatory risk or it, it just has to do with common sense, right? Uh, Jonathan, what relations do you maintain with other Boston sports teams as you determine how to change and improve fan interactions or experiences with sports betting? That's a good question. Really, really uh, a lot. Our, our organization, along with the Celtics, Red Sox, Bruins, spent a lot of time with our state legislature. Obviously, we weren't that effective because it took a lot of time um, to get it done. But we collaborate together, and there was a lot of talking offline between general counsels and the business people who were responsible for this area. Uh, together privately and then going to the legislature with one voice. So it's, it's real. And we're not, we're in no way, in a big market like Boston, anyhow, we're not competitive with each other in any way, shape, or form. So anything that's good for one of us is really good for all of us, and we work collaboratively on a whole host of issues. Outside of spend and betting frequency, what are other factors that determine a high-value customer versus a low value customer, Amy? Well, listen, at the end of the day, you know, it's a, a function of how effectively can we retain that customer and drive share of wallet onto our platform. And, you know, as, as you look at a, a good, first of all, a good customer is somebody who spends within their limits, for, first and foremost. Um, but, you know, you're also, yes, those are important drivers. Um, the customers that tend to be more engaged in player props and same game parlays, um, and also, we'll, you know, we'll, they'll, they'll bet on the big moments, but they, they may also engage in some of our other products, right? We have, an, you know, we have a casino product. We just integrated our horse racing product into Sportsbook. So it's consumers who, who are engaged, but again, they're doing that within you know, their economic means and keeping as a form of entertainment. So th those, those are, tends to, tend to be our, our more valuable customers, ones that go up across the portfolio. Oh, uh do you think that Amazon and Apple and, 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 you know, YouTube now has the Sunday ticket, are you concerned, are you anticipating that you will have for, formidable big tech competitors, Tom? I don't anticipate them 
standing up their own business in this space, but you know, we are collectively, we're buttons on the first page of your phone. You know, our apps are a place that have eyeball and wallet share. And as it grows to a business that uh, is the overwhelming majority of the population where we're not there yet, if it grows to the size that you see in some estimates, there's gonna be interest from others that are fighting for that uh, eyeball time, screen time. This is the first, I've been in and around gaming since 1993. Um, this is the first development in gaming where you've really gotten any attention from companies that aren't involved in, in gambling. Uh, so as it grows bigger, I'd expect that to be, I ex I'd expect that there will ultimately be some convergence, but I think that would be more of a buy versus build decision. For yeah, I think it's a, I actually think it's a good thing for innovation and more engagement in, in the category, right? I mean, if you think about what Jonathan was describing, some of those big tech companies can actually solve some of the latency issues as we think about connected devices and knowing every customer who's logged in and then the ability to, to truly integrate and watch and bet. Those are, those are things that I think the big tech companies can, can ultimately help us solve. Um, and I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing a lot of those big companies also don't want to have to go through the hassle of getting that, licensed that, and regulated. Because that has been a standard response that Disney doesn't want to go sit in front of regulators in 35 states. However, I, I recently am sensing a bit of a sentiment shift among some of the companies that says it might be worth it. There might be enough money in it for us to go through that. Do you think that the, it, is, is that the biggest factor in them not getting into gambling? I think it's certainly been, it's certainly been a big one. I mean, if you think about Disney and ESPN, a big part of, you know, of, of, of why they, you, you cannot place a bet on ESPN. They can have a partnership with a sports betting operator, but the minute you place a bet on ESPN, they have to be licensed and regulated. And Michael Rubin's not here now. What do you want to say about the potential of him as a competitor in sports betting? Come on well, in, the water's warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we welcome more competition. By the way, I always say there's 60 competitors in the market already. So, oh. <laughs> but Fanatics has some great assets, and my, I respect Michael very much. So, if you, there's a new horse to bet on at this point, Jonathan, you want to throw your bet in? Well, I mean, I'll. I said to Tom earlier, I think he's got the best ads in the market, so I apologize, Amy. <laughs> but I'm a huge, I'm sacrilege for a Boston guy to say it, but the Mannings are awesome. So those ads, <laughs> those ads are great. I, I think the two people to my left, I think Jace, I think DraftKings, but I think Michael Rubin, when you look at 100 million installed customer base doing digital transactions with him with knowledge of the sports fans, I think he'll be somebody that, that will be a real player in this business. But as Tom and Amy just said, the market's going to be enormous. And if you have three or four really great, great companies driving this, it's going to benefit all of sports. And it's not going to be a winner-take-all. It's not going to happen, given the licenses and everything else. So I would, I would watch Fanatics. 
And I think you're going to end up with just a handful of very large, great companies improving the overall industry. And on that kumbaya moment, <laughs> thank you all so much for your attention. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks thank for having you. me.